Jesus. Amen. It is often the case, isn't it, in the Word of God that when it seems that only a few good men or women are left, only a few good men or women are left at God's disposal, that things are very dark. But it is through these dark, dark times and these few men and women, few good men and women at God's disposal, that difference, that blessing comes upon the nation. This story that we've been considering over the last three weeks in chapter 1 is the story of a humble, first, uh, humble um, priestly family who came before the Lord to worship. But this coming, this before the Lord to worship has led or was going to lead to much, much greater blessing. It is the story of Hannah and how she was barren of a child. She was deprived of having children. She was barren and she was burdened by this condition that she had. It is the story of how she was driven to her knees before the Lord. And how she poured out her heart as a grieved woman. As a woman that was of sorrowful spirit before the Lord. And she prayed for a, a male child. And she vowed that if the Lord would give her a boy, that she would give him back to the Lord all the days of his life. And the story that we have before us today, or the portion of text that we will consider today, having looked last week at how she prayed and she was granted her wish, how she went from being barren and burdened to being elated and expecting, and not only expecting, how she had a child. This, the portion that we will consider today is, will she follow through in what she vowed to the Lord? Will she take her vow seriously? Will she fulfill her promise to the Lord? Taking promises seriously, making promise to, promises to God is a serious matter. As we move, before we move to the text, let me just remind you of this. That those things that we say before the Lord are not just meant to make us feel warm and cuddly on the inside. We are professing them before the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heavens and earth. Listen to the words of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, we have a discussion uh, of this matter. And, and the, the, the preacher, Solomon, he says, It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do you understand that? It is better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Perhaps we should listen more carefully to the songs that we sing, shouldn't we? The songs that we just sung. We sung from, from, from this beautiful hymn, 400, or 475. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. 
Is this not a promise that we make before the Lord? Is this not something that we are com committing before the Lord? Or are they just words that we say? Or are they just things that we think are very nice to say in a hymn? Perhaps we should think more about the things that we pray for. The things we commit to the Lord when we pray. Perhaps we should think better when we put our amens to the end of someone else's prayer on our behalf. We commit ourselves to be holy. We, we say that we will give all our lives to, to God. I surrender all, we say in our hymns. It has serious implications. Listen to the words of Ecclesiastes before we come to this section. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7 says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth. That means be careful with what you say. And let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity. And the fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay, and pay, uh, delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity. But fear God. And that is the problem. The fear of God, as Paul says uh, in, in Romans, the fear of God is not before the, was not before their eyes. And so often that is the case when we say these things. We say these things with no fear of God in our lives, in, before our eyes. Wow, we say a lot of beautiful things when we're talking to one another. We promise a lot of good things, a lot of beautiful things. But the question really for God is not what we say, but what we do. Faith without works is dead, James says. Vows without following through to them, with them are worthless. It has been said, uh, a dear pastor that I love, he said that the most idolatrous hour in the week is the Sunday morning. Because people come before God and they worship a God they don't know. I would say, yes, I agree with that. But the most sacrilegious hour in the, in the whole of the week, most often, is the Sunday morning as well. We come before the Lord, we say a lot of beautiful things, or the Sunday evening, and we promise a lot of things. We, we say that we will commit, uh, commit, that we will not uh, seek worldly ambition, that we will, as we, we just sang, that the world, let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human heart and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. And while thou shalt smile upon me, God of wisdom, love and might, foes may hate and friends may shun me. Show thy face in all is bright. I will not leave you. I will, I will com commit myself to you. And, and then Monday morning rolls around and we completely forgot about it. 
Is that not lying before the Lord? Is that not vowing before the Lord something that we are not intending to follow through with? And that's the question that, that illustrates, or that is the, the point of this section. Anna has been given what she asked of the Lord. And the question on everyone's mind should be, will she make good on her promise? Will she follow through? Will she fulfill her vow to God? And will she consecrate this little boy to a lifelong life of service in the temple in the, at Shiloh? Or will she think differently when she has that precious little baby in her arms? When she sees it in front of her, will she have a different opinion about it? Will she maybe, as we often do, just slightly twist what she promised to God? And maybe rationalize not fulfilling her vow fully and completely? Will she say, oh, well, God, I know I promised to take him to Shiloh and give him as a Nazarite for all the days of his life. But have you seen Eli? Have you seen Ophni and Phineas? They are wicked. I'm not going to send my son there. Look, God, I'll do this. I'll, I'll, I'll keep my son. I'll dedicate him to you all the days of his life. But he's going to stay right here at home in Ramah. So often we rationalize not doing the things that we promise to do with, with excuses. Oh, I didn't know about this. We hedge ourselves from those promises. Is that the case with us? Perhaps she would think that it's no one heard her promise. As far as we know from the text, she asked it of the Lord. She vowed to give the son. But she never told Eli what the prayer was. She never told uh, her husband up until we, we read that her husband did know about it. She, maybe she could have just kept it to herself. No one knows. I'll just... This precious little boy. It's my son. Three year old, probably. Oh, how she could have reneged on her promise, but she didn't. She wanted to fulfill it. And she wanted that fulfillment to be complete, honorable, full. And that's what she did. A quote from a commentator that I found so, so convicting, as we often do these things. Blakey, he says, Many a one who makes vows or resolutions under pressure and pinch of distress immediately begins to pare them down when the pinch is removed. So we promise things, in the moment, because we're really stressed out, we really need this. And once the, the stress is gone, once we're, we're, we're back to normal, we, we start to diminish them. And he gives this illustration. He says, like the merchant in the storm who vowed a hecatomb, a hecatomb or a hundred bulls. He promised a hundred bulls to Jupiter. And then we reduced the hecatomb to a single bull. And then the bull he reduced to a sheep. And then the sheep to just a few dates, just a few fruits. But even these he ate as he went uh, on his way to the altar. And he only laid there the stones. We start off with huge promises, with great, wonderful promises. And when it got, gets to the altar, it's just a few stones. Let us not be like that. Let us learn from Anna. 
She said in her heart, not one yoth, not one tittle, not one inch from what I promised to the Lord, I will, I will renege on. I will give my son and I will fulfill my vow. And she asks, uh, we can pick up here on, on verse 21, uh, as, as she uh, has a son now, and we read that Elkanah, a, a godly man who uh, went with his house uh, to, the, to, the, to the house of the Lord to present his yearly sacrifice and his vow. You may ask here, what vow is this? I, I believe, although it's not specified, I believe that, the, the, that he felt that his own vow, that the, his wife's vow was his own vow as well. Or it might have been another vow that he made. But Hannah here, she says, she wouldn't go up. For she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned. Not until he's, he's weaned from, from, from needing my, my milk. For she, and not until he is ready to go. Not until the child is weaned. Then I will take him. That he may appear before the Lord and remain there. So the, the point here is that she wanted him to go and not need her mother's uh, nourishment. Nourishment. And in those days, much different than from in our days, the custom was for, for children to be suckling, to be breastfed, until much later. Especially because there was no, no such thing as baby formula, and the water was not as good as it should be. There was, in the, in the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, there is the suggestion there that Israelite children you, uh, usually were weaned around three years of age. So if you want to imagine three years of age, just look to my son, he's three years old. So that's about the age that they, kids would be weaned. Uh, and that's about the age that Hannah wanted to take her child to be given to the Lord. She was resolved to do it and she wanted to do it in the fullest, most solemn, most, most perfect way. And she said to her husband, look, I'm not going to take my child, Samuel, up to the house of the Lord and only to bring him up. I want him, when he goes up there, I want him to stay there. I want it to be a solemn occasion. I want that the, the first time my son steps foot on that temple, on that tabernacle, I want it to be the day that he is given to the Lord. That I fulfill my vow decisively and perfectly. There's something of a reverence uh, that she has about the vow that she took. There would be nothing wrong with taking him up or, and down. But she wanted it to be like that. The very first time that she would be presented in that holy place where Hannah had prayed three years before. Uh, where Hannah had poured out her soul uh, before the Lord. She wanted it to be the day that she would keep the vow that she made. The day that she would come before Eli and remind him of that conversation that she had with him. She wanted it to be the day that he would give her son as a perpetual, uh, for perpetual service in the house of the Lord. And so Elkanah said, okay. He said to Anna, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. And here we might ask, what does it mean only let the Lord establish his word? There was, seemed to be nothing of, of 
God speaking up until now. Unless we consider the, that when Elias spoke as the high priest, he was speaking for the Lord. When he's in verse 17 says, Go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition. But even then, Elkanah shouldn't... Uh, the, 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 the prayer was already answered. The petition was already granted. So it's not Eli's word. The Lord already brought it to pass. I believe that what Elkanah is saying here, may the Lord cause his purpose, his word, his will to stand. May the Lord keep and re uh, remain blessing this young boy. May the Lord be pleased to bring all of his will about to bless this boy and Israel through this boy. May the Lord establish his word. May the Lord cause his will to stand. And furthermore, furthermore to the, to the point that Elkanah was in line and was of one mind, of, of one accord with his wife, is that when the, the time did come for Samuel to be given as, as a, a Nazarite, for perpetual service in the temple. Furthermore, to that point, is that when this happened, when Hannah took Samuel to the temple, Elkanah gave three bulls, one ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. There is this abundance in what she gives. It's above and beyond what was required in this case. It's above and beyond what was uh, required as a burnt offering for the child being given to the service of God. It is a lavish gift. It is a, 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 a gift that surpasses what was needed according to the standards of the law. He gives three bulls. Only one would have sufficed. But there is this attitude of thanksgiving not only in Hannah but in, in Elkanah as well. And here let me just draw a, 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 a parenthesis. Why the sacrifice of a bull? Some would perhaps protest at this thought. Why does a child, and I do believe he was around three years old, according to tradition, why does a child of three years old need the sacrifice of a bull to expiate, expiate from his sins? Why there is a need to bring such a, such a sacrifice? A symbol of God's expiation. A symbol of, of, of God's acceptance and blessing. We might think, oh, he was three years old. He was innocent. He had, he had no sin in him. But when we start reading scripture, we realize that it's, from birth that we are strayed, uh, that we stray from God. It is by the fact that we are born in the nature of Adam, our forefather, that we are in sin and that we are in permanent, perpetual enmity with God unless atonement is made, unless a sacrifice is made. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And here we see that even little Samuel, 
this precious little young boy. He needed blood to be shed. And this should cause us to contemplate the solemn truth that no one can serve God unless blood was shed on his behalf. There is no way that we come before God and enjoy of his grace and favor and serve him as priests, as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. There is no way we can do that without his favor through the sacrifice of his son through the blood of Christ being applied on our behalf. So let us remember, I usually leave the applications to the end, uh, but let us remember that when we serve the Lord, when we serve the Lord in our workplaces, in our homes, in our, in our day-to-day lives, that when we serve the Lord, we serve the Lord because He's first given us the capacity to serve Him, that we serve Him in spite of our sinfulness that we had in us, our, our sin-stained garments, we serve him because he has washed us in the blood of his precious and glorious Son, our Lord Jesus. You cannot serve the Lord without the priestly sacrifice being made as Samuel's. You cannot serve the Lord in the New Testament age without the great high priest's sacrifice to be poured in your life, to wash, to wash you of your sins, to be dressed in the garment of his righteousness. There is no serving the Lord without that. So that's what happened here. And then we continue to read third point that they bring, finally bring the child to Eli. The bull was slain. They bring the child to Eli. Hannah starts speaking here. She, she says, verse 26, Oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I have also Lent him, the, word, the language here is the language of grant, language of giving back. I have lent him to the Lord, and as long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. The Lord gave it to me. I'll give it back to the Lord. I'll grant it to the Lord. And here she is. She doesn't remind Eli, first and foremost. She doesn't remind Eli of their interaction back then. And she's reminding him that, well, you remember three years, four years ago when we had this conversation, she, she, she doesn't mention the, the, the unpleasant part that he called it a, 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 drunken, a drunken woman. She's charitable. She's, she realizes that what's happening right now is greater than whatever happened back then. And, and there is a certain solemnity and importance to this event. And she perhaps doesn't want to to taint it with reliving the past. But she does touch on the past. She says, I was the one that stood before you years ago praying unto the Lord. But she does also point to the, the present. She says, I was granted. The Lord granted her petition and gave her a child. But she also looks to the future. She says, I will grant him to the Lord. I will lend him to, lend him to the Lord as long as he lives. It is interesting 
that Heli says absolutely nothing here. The very few times that we've been spoken of Eli, Eli, this wicked priest, we're alongside it uh, up until now, is just a few words in here, as this young boy is being given to perpetual service, Eli mentions nothing. He says nothing about his age. He says nothing about, uh, no doubt, he's given about will he be able to perform those things. No mention. Another thing that is of interest here, and I hope you're interested in this, is how, how, how Anna must have felt. Let's make no mistake, this is not just a fairy tale story, a fictional thing that never happened. This is a human being. This really happened. And this woman, Hannah, had to give her ch a child in fulfillment of the vow. And think of the humanity of this situation. What had must crossed her mind as, as she was taking her child there? For three years, perhaps. Again, I'm speculating here. But for three years, this child had been her constant companion. She had been by his side day in and day out. But for three years, this child has been her the source of many smiles in her life. It's easy for me to kind of uh, see this because I have a three-year-old child. And you think about, oh, for three years, although it's a short amount of time, in a, 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 as the older we get, three years becomes shorter and shorter. It is a, a wonderful time. And you see uh, a child grow up, learn to say the first words, learn to, to, give, to, to, to walk, learn, uh, start seeing his uh, own personality develop, how different he is from his brothers, how different he is from other children, how similar this seems, and all these things. And this woman, Hannah, had to give up this child that had charmed her heart, I'm sure, a child of prayer. A child that was born after much anguish for being barren. And there is Anna giving it. Let's make no mistake. Let's put ourselves in her shoes and realize that she, this was a huge step. And let's think of it as a child as well. She's not just giving a baby. Try and take my son off of my wife's arms uh, and, and you'll see that he also protests and he also has his own will. He's just started nursery and every single day up until now, we hope he gets used to it. As he gets to nursery, he starts crying because he knows mom's going to go away for three hours. Not the rest of his life. That's what he thinks probably. I'll never see mom again. Uh, but what about the child? Will he not miss his mom too? As much as she would miss him? And then think about what Hannah was, where Hannah was leaving this child. Again. These are, are very wicked days in the nation of Israel. Eli is a, is a depraved man. And uh, Ophni and Phineas, as we will see in, in the coming chapters, they are not the greatest of priests and they are certainly wicked men. And this was known to everyone. And here's Anna. Was it in her heart that she was taking Samuel to the, to the lion's den? 
in a sense, with, in the midst of all this depravity? How is he going to survive? Who's going to take care of this child? Is it Eli? Anna might have asked. No, Anna was much more of a woman of faith than to place her trust in Eli, Ophni, Phineas, or anyone else but God. Why was she so confident and so assured and so calm in doing this? Because she knew that God would take care of her child. That the same promise that was there of Joseph. Why was Joseph so blessed in the midst of so many troubles in his life? As he was sold into slavery by his brothers. As he found himself uh, in prison. Why was he so blessed? Because God was with him. That's what scripture says. And the Lord blessed him. Why was Moses able to, to be so uh, blessed in his ministry? Because he was God's servant. Because he was in the hands of God. That God would be with him. And Nana knew... In the midst of all the corruption, in the midst of all the depravity, in the midst of all the darkness that surrounded that temple, that tabernacle in, in Shiloh in these days, that God was going to be with this child because this child was a grace, a gift given by God. So God, and she was not giving Samuel back to Eli. She was not giving Samuel to Ophni or Phineas. She was giving back, lending back, granting back God, uh, Samuel to God. Her Lord, the God of hosts. So she is perfectly at peace in doing this. Because she knows that he shall call on me and I will answer him. As it was said of Moses. And I will be with him in, in, in trouble. And I will be with him to honor him. So you see, Hannah is this beautiful, beautiful example of someone who has a spirit of endurance. Uh, in the midst of trial, affliction, and agony, as we saw last week, as she prayed and poured out her heart before the Lord. But she is also a, a most noble example of a spirit of self-denial. I'll not put myself first. I will follow through with the promise I made. I will see to it that my vow is fulfilled, and I will honor God. Is this not a rebuke for us? Her self-denial. Not only her endurance in time of, of lacking, of wanting a son, of lacking things, but also her self-denial in times where God has granted everything that she wanted. Is this not a rebuke to us that so often put so many barriers in, uh, before our service? So many qualifiers. I'll do this, but I'll only do it if this is met. I'll only commit and, and myself to involve myself to this. Uh, if, if only, or I'll only fulfill my vow if, if, this, if this comes to pass. Oh, what a beautiful, wonderful example. Of a, one of the few godly women in Israel in those days. Godly women among godly men as well. One of the few godly men and women. Let's talk about, about them as a couple. As we conclude, let me mention, because I, there are a few reflections here. For us, there are uh, married men uh, or married woman, women uh, for us to consider from what's happening here. Number one, look at how committed this family was in the worship of the Lord. 
Look at how committed they were. They were a church-going family. Let's say it like this. They were a family that was constantly at the house of God in the stated, in the prescribed times of worship. Regardless of the difficulty or expense, they were there. Deuteronomy 12, 5 to 7 says, You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. And there you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, you and your family, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. A worshipping family, a paragon of what a family in our day and age in the New Testament church should look like. In terms of spirituality, we know that there is a, a, a massive red flag here with bigamy, with having Elkanah having two wives. But we won't go there today because we already looked at, it, at that two weeks ago. Secondly, we can perceive something of this unity between a husband and a wife. Isn't it beautiful to see that when Hannah said that she would not go up because she wanted to win the child first and she wanted to take the child on and leave him there, Basically, the day that she takes the child to Shiloh, to the temple, is the day that she will leave the child there. Isn't it wonderful to see that Elkanah understood Hannah's motivation, supported her? In many ways, what the sense that we have here is that Hannah's vow became Elkanah's vow as well. That they were together in this. It wasn't just that uh, Elkanah was like, okay, you do your thing spiritually and I'll do my thing spiritually over there. In fact, that is not, uh, not in accordance with the law. Under the law, a vow made by a wife needed to be confirmed uh, by a husband. So the family made the vow. Isn't it a wonderful thing to see that they are both of the same mind? He says to her, do what seems what is best for you. Wait until you have weaned him. May the Lord establish his words. We should look for this in our own homes, where husband and wife live in spiritual companionship. Where the husband realizes and recognizes the giftedness of their wives and enables them to serve and minister according to the gifts the spiritual gifts that God has granted her. Yes, there is a sense. Yes, we need to emphasize this in our day and age, that there is a spiritual headship in the household. But spiritual headship does not mean spiritual dictatorship. It does not mean that the husband does everything and the wife just stands there and takes care of the children. That's not in accordance with the Bible, with Scripture. Women are called to serve and minister to the, in, in the, the Word of God in their own places, in their own callings. And men are called, husbands are called 
to enable them to do so. Isn't it wonderful that in the Bible it is filled with women that are spirit-filled servants of God? Gifted women who make vital contributions to God's work. And unfortunately, I said this recently to a group of pastors, and I'm going slightly outside of the scope here. Um, unfortunately, we've become known more about what we are against than what we are for. We are against. Yes, the Bible says that women shouldn't be in, in the pulpit, teaching, ministry, and, and then we become known by this. But rather than or we become known, as I said to them, uh, our message becomes women don't do this, women don't do that, and women don't do the other. Instead of telling women, do this, and, and, and telling men, can you please stand up? Someone said it. Our message should be much less uh, women sit down and don't do this, and it should be men stand up and start doing what God has called you to do. But unfortunately, that's... That's the lay of the land. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. The Bible is filled of these women. Anna is just one of the great examples of women that the Lord has used. Let us not forget that Samuel was also Elkanah's son. Let us not forget that he also had love for this child. But he valued Hannah's contribution. And she was enabled by her husband to perform her spiritual duties better. That's probably the, the, the point that I want to make here. Husbands, those of you who are husbands, let us enable our wives to serve the Lord better. We do this by standing up and doing our jobs better so that they can be released from worrying about doing the things that we should be doing in the first place. Doing them rightly, doing them properly, so that they are released to do those things that they are called to do. There's a, finally as well a message to parents here. The duty of Christian parents is to prepare our children to serve God as we see here in, in, in Samuel, uh, exemplified. Hannah could lend her young son to the Lord because she was aware that Samuel belonged to the Lord before he belonged to her. Our children are not ours, ultimately. We are, they are gifts from God. We are stewards in God's hands. And we are called to use of our stewardship for his own glory. These are the reflections on the home. There are reflections as well that we need to have with our own personal lives as we consider this passage. One that has been particularly on my mind over the last couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, is what I mentioned in the beginning. Taking our promises seriously. Perhaps started a few weeks ago when we were in a midweek meeting considering uh, vows and oaths that we take. That vows should be made and performed, as the confession says, with most conscientious care and faithfulness. And it made me think, what are the things that we vow to as 
Christians before God as servants of the Lord, as church members, as husbands and wives, as uh, employees when we sign contracts and we, when we vow things. There are many places where we vow things and we take them very lightly. Marriage vows, we hope not in our midst. But we expect that when the marriage vow is said, that it is really a, an important thing. And for the most part, within Christian circles, it still is. is. It is declining at times, it seems. Ordination vows. In this case, in this congregation, we have two elders. Both me and Peter, we have had ordination vows. When we were ordained to ministry, we, we vowed a certain set of things. And we expect, or you expect, your pastors, your elders, to take them very seriously. To be very diligent in obeying them. There's church membership vows that we take in the presence of God towards one another when we become members of this church. To share and to participate in one another's life. To be a blessing and to be blessed by one another. To be faithful in attendance, to be faithful in giving, to be faithful in all of these things. Regardless of the difficulties, regardless of other uh, extenuating circumstances around. This passage should be a conviction, a convicting passage to all of us. Because as people of the Lord, people who say that we rely on God's promises for strength, protection, we are shielded in our salvation, as people who rely on Him, we should be very careful to keep our own promises to Him. Does that make sense? We are reliant on God's fulfilling His own promises. We should be careful to keep our own to, to Him. Regardless of the difficulties, regardless of, of the circumstances, our chief desire should be to remain faithful to our duties and obligations before the Lord. Because finally, what is the heart of the matter is one of worship, is one of fearing God. Samuel finishes, this, this chapter in Samuel finishes by saying that they worshipped the Lord. Let me turn there again. Just look quickly at at verse 28. So they worship the Lord there. And that is the heart of the matter. That is why Hannah is doing what she's doing. Because she wants to worship. She wants to, to present herself before God. And a living sacrifice in a sense. Holy and acceptable. As Paul says to God. Which is our spiritual worship. We are called to serve God. And the way we serve God in this world is to worship Him. To worship Him in our labors, whether we are in full-time ministry, whether we are in secular employment, whether we are men or with, whether we are women, whether we have been gifted with this set of gifts or that set of gifts. There is not one single Christian in this world, not one single redeemed man or woman of the kingdom of God that is not called for a purpose and that purpose is to worship 
and to bring glory to God's name. So you see, we often think of this, of it this way. That the, the most preeminent of men, we usually think of famous pastors, famous preachers. Oh, they are so great in God's kingdom. They will, they will be a, 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 a great token of God's grace. But actually, isn't Hannah a much greater woman than many of those preachers we, we hold dear and revere? Isn't her faithfulness something much greater to be looked at and to extol God for? We serve God in our daily lives. We serve God in the way that we perform our duties in our workplaces, in the way that we are good husbands, in the way that we are good wives, in the, in the way that we spend our time in the service of the Lord in our day-to-day lives. You see that, I know I've used that language, but that whole language of being between sacred and, and secular, and between, between clergy and, and, and non-clergy, is very Roman Catholic. It's very non-Protestant, Reformed. We are called to serve the Lord. We, are, we all, in that sense, are in ministry. We are all in full-time ministry, if you could call it like that. Why? Because God wants the whole of our lives. He is not, he's not happy to have just uh, a little bit of your life on Sunday morning and on Sunday evening, or maybe the whole of Sunday, if, uh, or in, in maybe a little bit more on the midweek. That's not when you do worship. That's not when you come to serve God. I've used this illustration and I'll use it again. Coming to church is like the, uh, a halftime team talk in a football game. It's when we come to be fed. It's when we come to receive instruction, to receive the, the, the nourishment of the Lord so that we can go out there and do the things that we were called to do. That is the point. That's why our Lord Jesus says, whoever loses, would save his life, will lose it. And whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. It is a call to lose our lives for the sake of Christ. To give him the first place, the preeminence in our, in our lives, in our plans, as parents, as husbands, as workers in, in secular employment. That's what we are called to do. It is us coming to him day by day and saying, Lord, you have made me, you have redeemed me from my sin. You have, through the death of your son, brought me into this kingdom, which of now I'm an ambassador and a herald in this dark, depraved, crooked generation and world. Oh, Lord, help me. I belong to you. So today I offer up my whole life to you again for your praise and for your service. That's what we are called to do. I'll finish with the words of John Wesley, one of those great famous pastors that I was speaking of. When he offered himself to the service of God, of Christ, and his gospel, he said, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or lay aside for you. Let me be full or let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing 
I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and your disposal. Is this something that we can do? Is this something?